Chapter Three A of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Rome. One warm, still day, late in the Roman autumn, our two young men were sitting beneath one of the high-stemmed pines of the Villa Ludovisi. They had been spending an hour in the mouldy little garden house, where the colossal mask of the famous Juno looks out with blank eyes from that dusky corner which must seem to her the last possible stage of a lapse from Olympus. Then they had wandered out into the gardens, and were lounging away the morning under the spell of their magical picturesqueness. Roderick declared that he would go nowhere else, that after the Juno it was a profanation to look at anything but sky and trees. There was a fresco of Guercino, to which Roland, though he had seen it on his former visit to Rome, went dutifully to pay his respects. But Roderick, though he had never seen it, declared that it couldn't be worth a fig, and that he didn't care to look at ugly things. He remained stretched on his overcoat, which he had spread on the grass, while Roland went off envying the intellectual comfort of genius, which could arrive at serene conclusions without disagreeable processes. But the latter came back. His friend was sitting with his elbows on his knees, and his head in his hands. Roland, in the geniality of a mood attuned to the mellow charm of a Roman villa, found a good word to say for the Guercino, but he chiefly talked of the view from the little Belvedere on the roof of the casino, and how it looked like the prospect from a castle turret in a fairy tale. "'Very likely,' said Roderick, throwing himself back with a yawn. "'But I must let it pass. I have seen enough for the present. I have reached the top of the hill. I have an indigestion of impressions. I must work them off before I go in for any more. I don't want to look at any more of other people's works for a month, not even at nature's own. I want to look at Roderick Hudson's. The result of it all is that I'm not afraid. I can but try, as well as the rest of them.' The fellow who did that gazing goddess yonder only made an experiment. The other day, when I was looking at Michelangelo's Moses, I was seized with a kind of defiance, a reaction against all this mere passive enjoyment of grandeur. It was a rousing great success, certainly, that rose there before me, but somehow it was not an inscrutable mystery, and it seemed to me, not perhaps, that I should some day do as well, but that at least I might. "'As you say, you can but try,' said Roland. "'Success is only passionate effort.' "'Well, the passion is blazing. We have been piling on fuel handsomely. It came over me just now that it is exactly three months to a day since I left Northampton. I can't believe it.' "'It certainly seems more.' "'It seems like ten years. What an exquisite ass I was!' "'Do you feel so wise now?' "'Verily. Don't I look so?' Surely I haven't the same face. Haven't I a different eye, a different expression, a different voice? I can hardly say, because I have seen the transition, but it's very likely. You are, in the literal sense of the word, more civilized. I dare say, added Roland, that Miss Garland would think so. That's not what she would call it. She would say I was corrupted. Roland asked a few questions about Miss Garland but he always listened narrowly to his companion's voluntary observations. "'Are you very sure?' he replied. "'Why, she's a stern moralist, and she would infer from my appearance that I had become a cynical sybarite.' Roderick had, in fact, a Venetian watch-chain round his neck, and a magnificent Roman intaglio on the third finger of his left hand. 
"'Will you think I take a liberty,' asked Rowland, "'if I say you judge her superficially?' "'For heaven's sake!' cried Roderick, laughing. "'Don't tell me she's not a moralist. "'It was for that that I fell in love with her, "'and with rigid virtue in her person.' "'She is a moralist, but not, as you imply, a narrow one. "'There's more than a difference in degree. "'It's a difference in kind. "'I don't know whether I ever mentioned it, "'but I admire her extremely. "'There is nothing narrow about her but her experience. "'Everything else is large. "'My impression of her is of a person of great capacity, "'as yet wholly unmeasured and untested. "'Some day or other, I'm sure, "'she will judge fairly and wisely of everything.' "'Stay a bit,' cried Roderick. "'You're a better Catholic than the Pope. "'I shall be content if she judges fairly of me, "'of my merits, that is. "'The rest she must not judge at all. "'She's a grimly devoted little creature. "'May she always remain so. "'Changed as I am, I adore her none the less. "'What becomes of all our emotions, our impressions?' "'He went on after a long pause. "'All the material of life that life pours into us at such a rate, "'during such a memorable three months as these. "'There are twenty moments a week, a day, for that matter, some days, "'that seem supreme, twenty impressions that seem ultimate, "'that appear to form an intellectual era. "'But the others come treading on their heels and sweeping them along, "'and they all melt like water into water,' and settle the question of precedence among themselves. The curious thing is that the more the mind takes in, the more it has space for, and that all one's ideas are like the Irish people at home who live in the different corners of a room and take boarders. "'I fancy it is our peculiar good luck that we don't see the limits of our minds,' said Rowland. "'We are young compared with what we may one day be. That belongs to youth. It is perhaps the best part of it.' They say that old people do find themselves at last face to face with a solid blank wall, and stand thumping against it in vain. It resounds, it seems to have something beyond it, but it won't move. That's only a reason for living with open doors as long as we can. Open doors, murmured Roderick. Yes, let us close no doors that open upon Rome. For this, for the mind, is eternal summer. But though my doors may stand open to-day, he presently added, I shall see no visitors. I want to pause and breathe. I want to dream of a statue. I have been working hard for three months. I have earned a right to a reverie. Roland, on his side, was not without provision for reflection, and they lingered on in broken, desultory talk. Roland felt the need for intellectual rest, for a truce to present care for churches, statues, and pictures, on even better grounds than his companion, inasmuch as he had really been living Roderick's intellectual life the past three months as well as his own. As he looked back on these full-flavoured weeks, he drew a long breath of satisfaction, almost of relief. Roderick, thus far, had justified his confidence and flattered his perspicacity. He was rapidly unfolding into an ideal brilliancy. He was changed even more than he himself suspected. He had stepped, without faltering, into his birthright, and was spending money intellectually as lavishly as a young heir who has just won an obstructive lawsuit. Roderick's glance and voice were the same, doubtless, as when they enlivened the summer dusk on Cecilia's veranda, but in his person, generally, there was an indefinable expression of experience rapidly and easily assimilated. Roland had been struck at the outset with the instinctive quickness of his observation, and his free appropriation of whatever might serve his purpose. 
He had not been, for instance, half an hour on English soil before he perceived that he was dressed like a rustic, and he had immediately reformed his toilet with a most unerring tact. His appetite for novelty was insatiable, and for everything characteristically foreign as it presented itself, he had an extravagant greeting, but in half an hour the novelty had faded, he had guessed the secret, he had plucked out the heart of the mystery, and was clamouring for a keener sensation. At the end of a month he presented mentally a puzzling spectacle to his companion. He had caught instinctively the keynote of the old world. He observed and enjoyed, he criticised and rhapsodised, but though all things interested him and many delighted him, none surprised him, he had divined their logic and measured their proportions, and referred them infallibly to their categories. Witnessing the rate at which he did intellectual execution on the general spectacle of European life, Roland at moments felt vaguely uneasy for the future. The boy was living too fast, he would have said, and giving alarming pledges to Henri in his later years. But we must live as our pulses are timed, and Roderick struck the hour very often. He was, by imagination, though he never became in manner, a natural man of the world. He had intuitively, as an artist, what one may call the historic consciousness. He had a relish for social subtleties and mysteries, and in perception, when occasion offered him an inch, he never failed to take an L. A single glimpse of a social situation of the elder type enabled him to construct the whole with all its complex chiaroscuro, and Roland more than once assured him that he made him believe in the metempsychosis, and that he must have lived in European society in the last century as a gentleman in a cocked hat and brocaded waistcoat. Hudson asked Roland questions which poor Roland was quite unable to answer, and of which he was equally unable to conceive where he had picked up the data. Roderick ended by answering them himself, tolerably to his satisfaction, and in a short time he had almost turned the tables, and become, in their walks and talks, the accredited source of information. Roland told him that when he turned sculptor, a capital novelist was spoiled, and that to match his eye for social detail, one would have to go to Honoré de Balzac. In all this Roland took a generous pleasure. He felt an especial kindness for his comrade's radiant youthfulness of temperament. He was so much younger than he himself had ever been, and surely youth and genius, hand in hand, were the most beautiful sight in the world. Roderick added to this the charm of his more immediately personal qualities. The vivacity of his perceptions, the audacity of his imagination, the picturesqueness of his phrase when he was pleased, and even more when he was displeased, his abounding good humour, his candour, his unclouded frankness, his unfailing impulse to share every emotion and impression with his friend, all this made comradeship a pure felicity, and interfused with a deeper amenity their long evening talks at café doors in Italian towns. They had gone almost immediately to Paris, and had spent their days at the Louvre and their evenings at the theatre. Roderick was divided in mind as to whether Titian or Mademoiselle Delaporte was the greater artist. They had come down through France to Genoa and Milan, had spent a fortnight in Venice and another in Florence, and had now been a month in Rome. Roderick had said that he meant to spend three months in simply looking, absorbing, and reflecting, without putting pencil to paper. 
He looked indefatigably, and certainly saw great things, things greater, doubtless, at times, than the intentions of the artist. And yet he made few false steps, and wasted little time in theories of what he ought to like and to dislike. He judged instinctively and passionately, but never vulgarly. At Venice, for a couple of days, he had half a fit of melancholy over the pretended discovery that he had missed his way, and that the only proper vestment of plastic conceptions was the colouring of Titian and Paul Veronese. Then, one morning, the two young men had themselves rowed out to Torcello, and Roderick lay back for a couple of hours watching a brown-breasted gondolier making superb muscular movements, in high relief, against the sky of the Adriatic, and at the end jerked himself up with a violence that nearly swamped the gondola, and declared that the only thing worth living for was to make a colossal bronze and set it aloft in the light of a public square. In Rome his first care was for the Vatican. He went there again and again. But the old imperial and papal city altogether delighted him. Only there he really found what he had been looking for from the first, the complete antipodes of Northampton. And indeed Rome is the natural home of those spirits with which we just now claimed fellowship for Roderick, the spirits with a deep relish for the artificial element in life and the infinite superpositions of history. It is the immemorial city of convention. The stagnant Roman air is charged with convention. It colors the yellow light and deepens the chilly shadows. And in that still recent day the most impressive convention in all history was visible to men's eyes in the Roman streets, erect in a gilded coach drawn by four black horses. Roderick's first fortnight was a high aesthetic revel. He declared that Rome made him feel and understand more things than he could express. He was sure that life must have there, for all one's senses, an incomparable fineness, that more interesting things must happen to one than anywhere else. And he gave Roland to understand that he meant to live freely and largely, and be as interested as occasion demanded. Roland saw no reason to regard this as a menace of dissipation, because in the first place there was in all dissipation, refine it as one might, a grossness which would disqualify it for Roderick's favour, and because in the second the young sculptor was a man to regard all things in the light of his art, to hand over his passions to his genius, to be dealt with, and to find that he could live largely enough without exceeding the circle of wholesome curiosity. Roland took immense satisfaction in his companion's deep impatience to make something of all his impressions. Some of these, indeed, found their way into a channel which did not lead to statues, but it was none the less a safe one. He wrote frequent long letters to Miss Garland, and when Roland went with him to post them, he thought wistfully of the fortune of the great loosely written missives, which cost Roderick unconscionable sums in postage. He received punctual answers of a more frugal form, written in a clear, minute hand, on paper vexatiously thin. If Roland was present when they came, he turned away and thought of other things, or tried to. These were the only moments when his sympathy halted, and they were brief. For the rest he let the days go by unprotestingly, and enjoyed Roderick's serene efflorescence as he would have done a beautiful summer sunrise. Rome, for the past month, had been delicious. The annual descent of the Goths had not yet begun, and sunny leisure seemed to brood over the city.
Roderick had taken out a notebook, and was roughly sketching a memento of the great Juno. Suddenly there was a noise on the gravel, and the young men, looking up, saw three persons advancing. One was a woman of middle age, with rather grand air and a great many furbelows. She looked very hard at our friends as she passed, and glanced back over her shoulder, as if to hasten the step of a young girl who slowly followed her. She had such an expansive majesty of mien, that Roland supposed she must have some proprietary right in the villa, and was not just then in a hospitable mood. Beside her walked a little elderly man, tightly buttoned in a shabby black coat, but with a flower in his lappet, and a pair of soiled light gloves. He was a grotesque-looking personage, and might have passed for a gentleman of the old school, reduced by adversity to playing Cicerone to foreigners of distinction. He had a little black eye which glittered like a diamond, and rolled about like a ball of quicksilver, and a white moustache, cut short and stiff like a worn-out brush. He was smiling with extreme urbanity, and talking in a low, mellifluous voice to the lady, who evidently was not listening to him. At a considerable distance behind this couple strolled a young girl, apparently of about twenty. She was tall and slender, and dressed with extreme elegance. She led by a cord a large poodle of the most fantastic aspect. He was combed and decked like a ram for sacrifice. His drunken haunches were of the most transparent pink, his fleecy head and shoulders as white as jeweller's cotton, and his tail and ears ornamented with long blue ribbons. He stepped along stiffly and solemnly beside his mistress, with an air of conscious elegance. There was something at first slightly ridiculous in the sight of a young lady gravely appended to an animal of these incongruous attributes, and Roderick, with his customary frankness, greeted the spectacle with a confident smile. The young girl perceived it, and turned her face full upon him, with a gaze intended apparently to enforce greater deference. It was not deference, however, her face provoked, but startled, submissive admiration. Roderick's smile fell dead, and he sat eagerly staring. A pair of extraordinary dark blue eyes, a mass of dusky hair over a low forehead, a blooming oval of perfect purity, a flexible lip, just touched with disdain, the step and carriage of a tired princess. These were the general features of his vision. The young lady was walking slowly, and letting her long dress rustle over the gravel. The young men had time to see her distinctly, before she averted her face and went her way. She left a vague, sweet perfume behind her as she passed. "'Immortal powers!' cried Roderick. "'What a vision! In the name of transcendent perfection, who is she?' He sprang up and stood looking after her, until she rounded a turn in the avenue. What a movement, what a manner, what a poise of the head! I wonder if she would sit to me. You had better go ask her, said Roland, laughing. She is certainly most beautiful. Beautiful? She's beauty itself. She's a revelation. I don't believe she is living. She's a phantasm, a vapour, an illusion. The poodle, said Roland, is certainly alive. Nay, he too may be a grotesque phantom like the black dog in Faust. I hope at least that the young lady has nothing common with Mephistopheles. She looked dangerous. If beauty is immoral, as people think at Northampton, said Roderick, she is the incarnation of evil. The mamma and the queer old gentleman, moreover, are a pledge of her reality. Who are they all? 
The Prince and Princess Ludovisi and the Principessina, suggested Roland. There are no such people, said Roderick. Besides, the little old man is not the papa. Roland smiled, wondering how he had ascertained these facts, and the young sculptor went on. The old man is a Roman, a hanger-on of the mamma, a useful personage who now and then gets asked to dinner. The ladies are foreigners, from some northern country, I won't say which. Perhaps from the state of Maine, said Roland. No, she's not an American, I'll lay a wager on that. She's a daughter of this elder world. We shall see her again, I pray my stars. But if we don't, I shall have done something I never expected to. I shall have had a glimpse of ideal beauty. He sat down again and went on with his sketch of the Juno, scrawled away for ten minutes, and then handed the result in silence to Roland. Roland uttered an exclamation of surprise and applause. The drawing represented the Juno as to the position of the head, the brow, and the broad fillet across the hair, but the eyes, the mouth, the physiognomy were a vivid portrait of the young girl with the poodle. I have been wanting a subject, said Roderick. There's one made to my hand, and now for work. They saw no more of the young girl, though Roderick looked hopefully, for some days, into the carriages on the pension. She had evidently been but passing through Rome. Naples or Florence now happily possessed her, and she was guiding her fleecy companion through the Villa Reale or the Boboli Gardens with the same superb defiance of irony. Roderick went to work and spent a month shut up in his studio. He had an idea, and he was not to rest till he had embodied it. He had established himself in the basement of a huge, dusky, dilapidated old house, in that long, tortuous, and pre-eminently Roman street which leads from the Corso to the bridge of Sant'Angelo. The black archway which admitted you might have served as the portal of the Orgean stables, but you emerged presently upon a mouldy little court, of which the fourth side was formed by a narrow terrace overhanging the Tiber. Here, along the parapet, were stationed half a dozen shapeless fragments of sculpture, with a couple of meagre orange-trees and terracotta tubs, and an oleander that never flowered. The unclean, historic river swept beneath. Behind were dusky, reeking walls spotted here and there with hanging rags and flower-pots and windows. Opposite, at a distance, were the bare brown banks of the stream, the huge rotunda of Sant'Angelo, tipped with its seraphic statue, the dome of St. Peter's, and the broad-topped pines of the Villa Doria. The place was crumbling and shabby and melancholy, but the river was delightful, the rent was a trifle, and everything was picturesque. Roderick was in the best humour with his quarters from the first, and was certain that the working mood there would be intenser in an hour than in twenty years of Northampton. His studio was a huge, empty room with a vaulted ceiling, covered with vague, dark traces of an old fresco, which Roland, when he spent an hour with his friend, used to stare at vainly for some surviving coherence of floating draperies and clasping arms. Roderick had lodged himself economically in the same quarter. He occupied a fifth floor on the Ripetta, but he was only at home to sleep for when he was not at work he was either lounging in Roland's more luxurious rooms, or strolling through the streets and churches and gardens. Roland had found a convenient corner in a stately old palace, not far from the Fountain of Trevi, 
and made himself a home to which books and pictures and prints and odds and ends of curious furniture gave an air of leisurely permanence. He had the tastes of a collector. He spent half his afternoons ransacking the dusky magazines of the curiosity-mongers, and often made his way, in quest of a prize, into the heart of impecunious Roman households, which had been prevailed upon to listen, with closed doors and an impenetrably wary smile, to proposals for a hereditary antique. In the evening, often, under the lamp, amid dropped curtains and the scattered gleam of firelight upon polished carvings and mellow paintings, the two friends sat with their heads together, criticizing intaglios and etchings, water-colored drawings and illuminated missiles. Roderick's quick appreciation of every form of artistic beauty reminded his companion of the flexible temperament of those Italian artists of the sixteenth century who were indifferently painters and sculptors, sonneteers and engravers. At times when he saw how the young sculptor's day passed in a single sustained pulsation while his own was broken into a dozen conscious devices for disposing of the hours, and intermingled with sighs, half-suppressed, some of them, for conscience' sake, over what he failed of in action and missed in possession, he felt a pang of something akin to envy. But Roland had two substantial aids for giving patience the air of contentment. He was an inquisitive reader and a passionate rider. He plunged into bulky German octavos on Italian history, and he spent long afternoons in the saddle, ranging over the grassy desolation of the Campagna. As the season went on and the social groups began to constitute themselves, he found that he knew a great many people and that he had easy opportunity for knowing others. He enjoyed a quiet corner of a drawing-room beside an agreeable woman, and although the machinery of what calls itself society seemed to him to have many superfluous wheels, he accepted invitations and made visits punctiliously, from the conviction that the only way not to be overcome by the ridiculous side of most such observances is to take them with exaggerated gravity. He introduced Roderick right and left, and suffered him to make his way himself an enterprise for which Roderick very soon displayed an all-sufficient capacity. Wherever he went he made, not exactly what is called a favourable impression, but what from a practical point of view is better, a puzzling one. He took to evening parties as a duck to water, and before the winter was half over was the most freely and frequently discussed young man in the heterogeneous foreign colony. Roland's theory of his own duty was to let him run his course and play his cards, only holding himself ready to point out shoals and pitfalls, and administer a friendly propulsion through tight places. Roderick's manners on the precincts of the pension were quite the same as his manners on Cecilia's veranda. That is, they were no manners at all. But it remained as true as before that it would have been impossible, on the whole, to violate ceremony with less of lasting offence. He interrupted, he contradicted, he spoke to people he had never seen, and left his social creditors without the smallest conversational interest on their loans. He lounged and yawned, he talked loud when he should have talked low, and low when he should have talked loud. Many people, in consequence, thought him insufferably conceited, and declared that he ought to wait till he had something to show for his powers, before he assumed the airs of a spoiled celebrity. 
But to Rowland and to most friendly observers this judgment was quite beside the mark, and the young man's undiluted naturalness was its own justification. He was impulsive, spontaneous, sincere. There were so many people at dinner-tables and in studios who were not, that it seemed worth while to allow this rare specimen all possible freedom of action. If Roderick took the words out of your mouth when you were just prepared to deliver them with the most effective accent, he did it with a perfect good conscience, and with no pretension of a better right to being heard, but simply because he was full to overflowing of his own momentary thought, and it sprang from his lips without asking leave. There were persons who waited on your periods much more deferentially, who were a hundred times more capable than Roderick of a reflective impertinence. Roderick received from various sources, chiefly feminine, enough finely adjusted advice to have established him in life as an embodiment of the proprieties, and he received it, as he afterwards listened to criticisms on his statues, with unfaltering candour and good humour. Here and there, doubtless, as he went, he took in a reef in his sail, but he was too adventurous a spirit to be successfully tamed, and he remained at most points the florid, rather strident young Virginian, whose serene inflexibility had been the despair of Mr. Stryker. All this was what friendly commentators, still chiefly feminine, alluded to when they spoke of his delightful freshness, and critics of harsher sensibilities, of the other sex, when they denounced his damned impertinence. His appearance enforced these impressions, his handsome face, his radiant, unaverted eyes, his childish, unmodulated voice. Afterwards, when those who loved him were in tears, there was something in all this unspotted comeliness that seemed to lend a mockery to the causes of their sorrow. Certainly, among the young men of genius who for so many ages have gone up to Rome to test their powers, none ever made a fairer beginning than Roderick. He rode his two horses at once with extraordinary good fortune. He established the happiest modus vivendi betwixt work and play. He wrestled all day with a mountain of clay in his studio, and shattered half the night away in Roman drawing-rooms. It all seemed part of a kind of divine facility. He was passionately interested. He was feeling his powers. Now that they had thoroughly kindled in the glowing, aesthetic atmosphere of Rome, the ardent young fellow should be pardoned for believing that he never was to see the end of them. He enjoyed immeasurably, after the chronic obstruction of home, the downright act of production. He kept models in his studio till they dropped with fatigue. He drew on other days at the Capitol and the Vatican, till his own head swam with his eagerness and his limbs stiffened with the cold. He had promptly set up a life-sized figure, which he called an Adam, and was pushing it rapidly toward completion. There were naturally a great many wise heads who smiled at his precipitancy, and cited him as one more example of Yankee crudity, a capital recruit to the great army of those who wish to dance before they can walk. They were right, but Roderick was right, too, for the success of his statue was not to have been foreseen. It partook, really, of the miraculous. He never surpassed it afterwards, and a good judge here and there has been known to pronounce it the finest piece of sculpture of our modern era. To Roland it seemed to justify superbly his highest hopes of his friend, and he said to himself that if he had invested his happiness in fostering a genius, he ought now to be in possession of a boundless complacency. 
There was something especially confident and masterly in the artist's negligence of all such small, picturesque accessories as might serve to label his figure to a vulgar apprehension. If it represented the father of the human race and the primal embodiment of human sensation, it did so in virtue of its look of balanced physical perfection and deeply, eagerly, sentient vitality. Roland, in fraternal zeal, travelled up to Carrara and selected at the quarries the most magnificent block of marble he could find, and when it came down to Rome the two young men had a celebration. They drove out to Albano, breakfasted boisterously in their respective measure at the inn, and lounged away the day in the sun on the top of Monte Cavo. Roderick's head was full of ideas for other works, which he described with infinite spirit and eloquence, as vividly as if they were ranged on their pedestals before him. He had an indefatigable fancy. Things he saw in the streets, in the country, things he heard and read, effects he saw just missed or half expressed in the works of others, acted upon his mind as a kind of challenge, and he was terribly restless until, in some form or other, he had taken up the glove and set his lance in rest. The Adam was put into marble, and all the world came to see it. Of the criticisms passed upon it, this history undertakes to offer no record. Over many of them the two young men had a daily laugh for a month, and certain of the formulas of the connoisseurs, restrictive or indulgent, furnished Roderick with a permanent supply of humorous catchwords. But people enough spoke flattering good sense to make Roderick feel as if he were already half famous. The statue passed formally into Rowland's possession, and was paid for as if an illustrious name had been chiselled on the pedestal. Poor Roderick owed every franc of the money. It was not for this, however, but because he was so gloriously in the mood, that denying himself all breathing time, on the same day he had given the last touch to the atom, he began to shape the rough contour of an eve. This went forward with equal rapidity and success. Roderick lost his temper time and again with his models, who offered but a gross, degenerate image of his splendid ideal. But his ideal, as he assured Roland, became gradually such a fixed, vivid presence, that he had only to shut his eyes to behold a creature far more to his purpose than the poor girl who stood posturing at forty sous an hour. The eve was finished in a month, and the feat was extraordinary, as well as the statue, which represented an admirably beautiful woman. When the spring began to muffle the rugged old city with its clambering festoons, it seemed to him that he had done a handsome winter's work, and had fairly earned a holiday. He took a liberal one, and lounged away the lovely Roman May doing nothing. He looked very contented, with himself perhaps at times, a trifle too, obviously. But who could have said without good reason? He was flushed with triumph. This classic phrase portrayed him to Roland's sense. He would lose himself in long reveries, and emerge from them with a quickened smile and a heightened colour. Roland grudged him none of his smiles, and took an extreme satisfaction in his two statues. He had the Adam and the Eve transported to his own apartment, and one warm evening in May he gave a little dinner in honour of the artist. It was small, but Roland had meant it should be very agreeably composed. He thought over his friends, and chose four. They were all persons with whom he lived in a certain intimacy. End of chapter 3a